so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. Welcome to the ERLC podcast, where our goal is to help you think biblically about today's cultural issues. I'm Elizabeth Bristow, and on today's episode, we're going to talk more about the church and discipleship related to gender and sexuality. Throughout this series, we've been seeking biblical answers and practical wisdom to apply to questions of gender and sexuality swirling around in our culture, our churches, and in our hearts. It's been a joy to explore these issues with you and spur one another on to hold fast to Christ and love our neighbors. On this last episode in our series, we're going to focus more on pastors and how they can shepherd their people to better understand the biblical sexual ethic and how to apply that to their daily lives. As we discuss these important topics, you might have additional questions. We'd love to hear from you, so please email us at erlcpodcast at erlc.com and let us know how you're processing this conversation. Joining us on today's podcast is Dr. Bart Barber. Bart is the pastor of First Baptist Church of Farmersville, Texas, and is president of the Southern Baptist Convention. Bart has a BA from Baylor University in their University Scholars Program an MDiv from Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Fort Worth, Texas, and a PhD in church history, also from Southwestern. You'll also hear from Matt McCullough, pastor of Edgefield Church in Nashville, Tennessee. Before joining Edgefield, Matt helped to plant Trinity Church near Vanderbilt University and served as pastor there for 10 years. He completed a PhD in American Religious History. Matt and his wife are the parents of three boys. The calling of a pastor is a weighty one. Shepherding a congregation to cling to Christ and His Word can feel like swimming upstream in a culture with impossible currents, particularly in the midst of the gender and sexuality storm we're experiencing. So addressing these topics is paramount. Here are Bart Barber and Matt McCullough with specific advice on how to do this well in pastoral ministry and preaching. Pastoral ministry is always a work of bridge building. You've got people that you're entrusted with who live in this time and this place. They have their questions, which are different from questions that would have been asked 100 years ago or 2,000 years ago. So you study them on one side. It means you want to know why certain things make sense to them that might not have made sense a couple hundred years ago means paying close attention to what they're reading and watching, what they're listening to, so that when you speak to them, you're speaking to them, not to some creation of your mind or some some people from some other place or time. So that's one side of the bridge. And the other side of the bridge is the Word of God, which is timeless. It speaks into every culture, every place. 
And its message is always going to be useful, but it's not always going to be clear why to the people that you get to pastor in your time and place. And your job as a pastor is to bridge that gap for them. So on, on issues of gender and sexuality, a lot of times that's going to be helping to show my friends where the intuitions of this modern world are out of step with the designs of God as defined by his word. A lot of times it is a more confrontational ministry, that bridge building work, but not always. In some cases, even with gender and sexuality, what they're experiencing or what they're hearing actually it flows out of confusion and pain that the gospel is meant to medicate. So sometimes the bridge building is about showing them that there is a gap there or a, a wound there or a confusion there that the gospel can resolve for them. It's the nature of Christianity across 2,000 years that you have to hold courageously the truths that the world around you doesn't understand. And so a steadfastness is required whenever we encounter issues that are controversial in the world around us. Two things that, that are really helpful for me, preaching through books of the Bible has been something that's been helpful. I'm not saying that's the only way that you can preach. Whether it's preaching through books of the Bible or however you're doing expository preaching, having a diet that regularly takes you into parts of the Bible that you might not otherwise choose, it makes sure that you're covering things that need to be covered that might be uncomfortable and covering it in a way that people understand why you're there and the nature of it. So as a church, we've got to keep in mind that we that we constantly have people in our pews who have been discipled more by what they hear outside the church than what they hear inside the church, whether it's students who are in school, adults, what they encounter in the workplace, just the fact that we have people who are coming and visiting who don't have a strong church background that we're trying to reach with the gospel. And so because of that, whenever I'm touching on these issues where we have sharp contrast between what culture's teaching and what and what we're teaching in the church, I try to avoid a lot in the way of humor, although I enjoy trying to be humorous. And it shows up in my preaching quite a bit in other places. This is generally not the place for it. And I also try to avoid trying to spike the football, you know, in the end zone. Because it's easy for these highly controversial topics to make the number of people in my congregation who already agree with me really hoot and holler and stomp and clap and, and make them really happy with me. Well, they're not the people I need to persuade on these topics. They already agree with me. I don't want to undermine their faith, but I want to preach in such a way that the grandchild of that 60-year-old who already agrees with me, but that grandchild just came back from public school where they've got a, a club that affirms LGBTQ issues, and they're not really sure on where the church is. I want to preach in a way that builds in them a confidence in a Christian worldview about who people are and about what godly sexuality is. And that probably involves not being someone who spikes the football and not being someone who takes cheap pot shots and jokes and stuff like that on this topic. But instead, with a very sober mind frame, I just want to try to present biblical truth in a way that's God-honoring and that makes sense and that carefully paints a contrast between the Christian worldview and the worldview of others around us. 
This contrast between a Christian worldview and the worldview of those around us should not just show up in the preaching and teaching in our churches. It should also be evident in the way we think, live, and interact with others as well. So what does this mean for the way pastors and leaders approach discipleship, particularly if they want their congregations to be the aroma of Christ in the midst of gender confusion? We're supposed to be known as Christians by our love for one another and our love for neighbor. And that's note that we've got to sound in everything that we say, or otherwise people recognize that it's not distinctively Christian, but also has to be something that's grounded in truth. I think that there are two things that I would highlight here that arise out of that idea of love and truth. The first one is we're just learning that there's no replacement for deep discipleship of believers you can no longer receive just sort of a skimming off of the top of Christian theology and be okay. You're going to be driven to deep questions and you have to be prepared to answer those and the best ways to be prepared to answer those ahead of time. So I think that's why we're seeing in the Southern Baptist Convention a renewed and increased emphasis on discipleship. The second thing I would say is this, across so many categories, we have given up on persuasion And I don't know why the changes in the world around us are evidence of how effective persuasion can be. Other people are outdoing us in the arena of persuasion. And yet a lot of the angry rhetoric that we see around us, it's not designed to persuade anybody. It's just designed to try to coerce people. But you can't coerce people and you can't shout them into changing their beliefs. They dig their hills in all the more strongly, the louder the conversation gets. And I think the most important thing that we could do is to regain a hopeful perspective about who people are and about what can be done in them through the power of God. God changes people and he changes people in ways that nobody else can explain. And if we truly believe that the Spirit of God is doing all of the things that Jesus promised that the Spirit of God would do, convicting people of sin, helping people to find truth, the game's rigged. There's magic in all of this that people can't explain. And if we would claim those promises, it would enable us calmly and with love to be people who are going about to persuade folks and to say, listen, I know I know that you've heard these things about the role of sexuality in your life and about what it's going to accomplish for you. I know you've heard these things about who you are as a person. I know that you've heard these things about who Christians are and what they're trying to do. But let me give you another perspective that maybe you haven't considered. And you just think about this. And all the while I'm thinking you can think about this, but the Spirit of God can also Move your heart to be drawn towards something that you never thought you'd be drawn toward. We ought to be the greatest optimists in the world. And uh, we should do that because we believe in the power of God to move people one at a time and entire societies. I think it's so important for the church to speak clearly and without any embarrassment about sex. We're not ashamed of it. It's a good gift from God. He's told us a lot about it because it matters to him. And he knows it's good for us if we embrace the way he set this good gift up to work. So I just think the church is sometimes probably caricatured as being embarrassed about sex. And in some cases, 
many churches are Christians, probably have been. And we just want to make that caricature harder and harder to throw at us by just speaking about it straightforwardly as if it's our thing, because it is. I think Genesis 1 to 3 is crucial. We got to keep pushing people back to the beginning of everything. Those three chapters have so much juice to be squeezed that we can't go back there too often, I think. We want people to remember why it is that God's rules are what they are, that it comes straight out of a plan that he had from the very beginning, and that that plan is good and not bad for us. And then I think the whole notion of bridge building is so important that this is for pastors, but it's for anybody who cares about helping someone else grow as a Christian. You have to pay close attention to what questions people really have and to why answers that are different from the Bible's answers make sense to them as best you can so that you can then apply the Bible's answers in a way that really connects. So you want to be studying the scriptures, Genesis 1 to 3, but also studying the culture where you can. And by culture, I don't even mean just focusing on movies or big philosophical ideas. I Just start by studying actual people that you know, by asking them good questions about what they think and why. And I think if we as church leaders can help our people understand their context better and then make the Genesis 1 to 3 connections for them, that'll make them better able to be evangelists where God has put them. Discipleship within the church should naturally overflow into a Christian's life outside of the church. As pastors help their people point to God's good design for sexuality and take up a posture of persuasion in our society, they should constantly remember that our methods will often affect how our message is received. Here are Bart and Matt with a few helpful insights for all of us as a church. First of all, our behavior has to demonstrate that we actually believe in the things that we're saying. And that's been a challenge for us in some ways. We're trying to tell people about a better way in terms of sexuality. And yet, you know, we make the headlines pretty regularly for people who have identified as Southern Baptists who are in some cases doing things that are criminal. And then in a lot of cases, doing things that just do not line up at all with what we're trying to tell the world. So it's important for us to believe in not just our sexual ethic, it's important for us to believe in the dignity of human beings and the beauty of the gospel and the importance of the eternal over that which is temporary and earthly. And so if we'll do that, if we'll act, and we're not gonna be perfect, we're never gonna be perfect. But even in confronting our imperfections, if we just showed that we actually believed what we were talking about, that would go a long way. The second thing that I would say, we need to recover in our own hearts a sense of the winsomeness of Christ and the, and the winsomeness of the gospel that we're proclaiming. At the annual meeting, I preached about the importance of Christian aesthetics. And uh, with regard to that, I was just talking about how in a world where Nobody wants to extol Norman Rockwell as a great artist that's too pedestrian and mundane. But what I love about Norman Rockwell is that he saw beauty in everyday life. And honestly, everyday life where there was a lot of ugly too, a lot of ugly that needed to be confronted and addressed. And I thank God for people who are willing to point out the ugly and address it and try to affect change. But so many of the people who pointed out ugly things did it by pointing us to a vision of beauty in everyday life that was around us. Martin Luther King Jr. used 
Christian themes, Christian theology and ideas of justice and a, and a dream of something that would be beautiful. And it was through that aesthetic of good that he was able to change people's perspectives and move people towards something different. And so, you know, we're in a world where we will change the channel past 50 people who are talking about something good or something beautiful to try to find the program where people are angry and yelling at each other. We will refuse to follow a hundred Instagram accounts. You should see my Instagram. It's full of cows and just beautiful, amazing, peaceful things that are going on in the world around us. We'll skip those accounts and we'll go find accounts of people who, man, sometimes I encounter people's accounts online and I just pray for them because I think, bless your heart. You can find the dark cloud in every silver lining, you know, and how obviously unhappy you are. And so I think we have to develop an aesthetic for whatever's pure and whatever's lovely and whatever's true. And if we'll do that, I think we'll find a better way of persuasion. Paul went to the Areopagus and with a hundred things around him that were ugly artifacts of idolatry, he found something commendable just in the fact that they had recognized that maybe there was a God they didn't know. And he chose that one thing to commend as a way to persuade people to get a hearing for the gospel. And I wish we would regain that ability to see the beauty in the world around us and the beauty in the people around us in a way that we can use that to appeal to them for the gospel. And so I'm not talking about our refusal at all to take controversial stands. I'm willing to do that at any time. But I want to be the person taking a controversial stand in a way that I can legitimately say, the reason I do this is because I love you and I believe this is true. I think the grace and truth package that Jesus modeled for us isn't actually a balance. It's both all the time. That it's not like once you start pouring on grace, that means you're pouring on less truth. And once you start kicking in on the truth side, the grace side is depleted a little bit, bit by bit. That That isn't how it works. Like, there is always a grace in God's truth. He didn't have to speak to us to tell us who He is or how He's made His world or what is good for us to do and to be. It's a grace from Him that He's spoken. And the truth is good, so we want people to have it. And the grace that we show each other is is based in the truth of the gospel. It's when we don't look down on other people, it's not because we're pretending that we're not any better than they are. It's because in truth, we're not better than they are. We deserve to be punished for our sin and God has chosen not to. He punished Jesus instead. So we don't look down on anybody because of the truth of the word. It's both of those rather all the time. It's just that some of us are gonna be tempted to turn down the dial on one of them in the name of turning up the other dial and that isn't ever a good thing. So we need to know where we're tempted to do that and run the other way. Even in the midst of an earnest desire to influence non-Christians around us with the truth, approaching these topics can feel paralyzing in light of their personal nature and the hostility they often evoke in cultural conversation. Amy and Stephen Costello, 
in addition to Matt, offer helpful reminders that take the pressure off of getting these conversations just right. So when you're in family or community, you probably want to remain in good standing. It's where we live, it's where our kids go to school, it's where we worship, it's where we work, we're in all of these spaces and we want to remain in good standing. But in today's climate, you've got cancel culture on one side, but then you also have this idea that you either have to have total affirmation or you have a phobia, right? And so you're being presented with only those two worldly options, which is not how we operate as believers. And it can be really easy I think to unintentionally cause us as believers to be nice and spiritual instead of being filled with the Holy Spirit and being truly kind and biblical. So the verse that comes to mind when I think about interacting with family and community that have very diverse opinions on this topic is Colossians 4. It says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of your time. Let your speech be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer each person. And I think that we've talked a lot about being good listeners, but even in that verse, it says each person, right? There's not a blanket way you can come into a family uh, and discuss it with each family member, right? There's not going to be a way you come into community and have that. But I do think that we need to learn to be kind in the spirit. What you do say about what we believe needs to point back to Jesus very clearly. And if it doesn't, and it's just softened spirituality, that's not a helpful statement. We have to be in the word regularly so that we can be the salt and have the discernment to speak with our family and community that don't agree. I would add to that too, that it feels like you have to choose between either conviction or compassion and humility. And you got one end as Amy was describing that, you know, it's if you don't fully firm or buy in, like you're not loving. But then there's another end of this where it's like, if you're not like convictional and you're culture warring and beating the drum, then you're not being biblical. And I think we have to hold those two things together. I don't even necessarily think intention. But I think that there are two things that go together in a way that are compelling because there are some in our neighborhood that they know what we believe and they're never going to like us. And that's until the Lord changes them. And like, and we can't do anything about that. But there are others who they know what we believe, but they also see our humility and our compassion and our love for them and the way we've treated them personally, who then have become some of our greatest advocates because they know that while they disagree with what we believe, they see the way we live our lives. And so we're trying to demonstrate those two things because I do think it's confusing and compelling to an onlooking world. And to some people, that's going to smell like death. And to some people, that's going to smell like life. And we have to just trust that the Spirit's working in that. As Christians, we live in the world, but not of it. It's a good thing that God has put us around people who don't agree with us. That's part of His plan. So we need to see that not as a problem, but as an opportunity. We also need to be aware that we are as exiles on somebody else's turf in a way that we shouldn't expect everyone around us to see things the way we do. And so we want to be ready and willing to understand why they see things the way they do so that we can connect them to what God has said and do it in a way that will be at least understandable, if not appealing to them. So I think part of what we need to remember on the the, the living in a community with diverse opinions is that you you don't have to have the whole conversation all at once. You need to do a little bit of strategizing here, especially if you're going to see this person regularly, if it's a neighbor or a coworker. Our views on sexuality and gender as Christians are part of a much bigger package. They only make sense in light of that bigger package. And there are some foundational beliefs we have that they rest on that really come first. So I'm going to want to encourage members to just not feel like they got to go cover it all all at once. 
not feel like they're sacrificing something or compromising somehow if they only pick one piece of the puzzle and start there. And specifically, what I want to say is start with Jesus. All of our views of sexuality and, and gender are reinforced by the fact that Christ has risen from the dead, that he believed the things that Genesis 1 to 3 say about us. Then he lived, then he really died, then he really came back from the dead again and told us that through him we can have life with the God who made us if we repent and believe. So our views on sexuality and gender are endorsed by a man who was dead and now isn't. And we want to start there because if he's not alive again, then he's, he's not really ultimately compelling to us. There are things in the world for sure that in the way God has made us that you can point to common grace kind of arguments for our views on gender and sexuality. And I'm, I'm not saying don't look at those. I'm saying those aren't as compelling as the fact that a dead man is alive again. And he's endorsed these views. So look to have that part of the conversation first. Keep Jesus front and center. And when you do have to give an account of what you believe about gender and sexuality, you want him all laced through that conversation. Like to keep him as the basis and not yourself is crucial. And then you just want to live with wisdom and pray, pray, pray for wisdom about where where to bring it up, when to bring it up, what to say at each opportunity. Because ultimately you need wisdom from above and God promises to give it to those who ask. And ultimately, that person you're talking to needs a miracle. They need Jesus to show up for them the way he did for you. Pastors and leaders, no doubt, have seen Jesus show up for his people time and time again. And their hope as they disciple their flocks to live faithfully as salt and light in the world is trusting that with God, all things are possible. Still, struggles remain. The narrow path is a hard one. So how might pastors encourage and help those who feel it's difficult to walk in holy sexuality? Some people are going to have certain challenges that I don't have. And my ability to understand how challenging their challenge is to them, it just can't be the standard for whether or not I have anything useful to say to them as a pastor. I'm not recommending things based on my experience. If I'm doing my job as a pastor, I'm just trying to speak as an ambassador for God. I'm trying to lean into what he said in his word and offer it to people as clearly as I can because it comes from him and not from me. So if someone is saying to me, as as they often have, yeah, you can't relate and you haven't had to say no in the way that you're telling me I should say no or that my friends should say no, I usually would just say, you're so right about that. I haven't had to pay that cost. But our ballast in dealing with temptation and in learning to sacrifice ourselves is knowing that Jesus knows us and understands us intimately, not me. That I tell you to do something would be a terrible reason to do it. If I'm telling you to say no, and you do that just because I said to say no to something you want, you're setting yourself up for a lot of disappointment and failure. I am not your standard. I am not your authority. The only reason you should deny yourself what you want is if if the God who made you has asked you to, if the, the resurrected Savior that came for you has told you to, If he has spoken and said, say no here, say yes to me instead, then that's reason enough to do it. But he's got to be the focus. So God's word is so clear about how he's made us that male and female are good parts of his design and that the fall has touched everything, including our sense of who we are. So we want to to realign what we say about ourselves by the word of God and what he has said about us. So any disconnect between what we feel about ourselves and the body God has given us is one we want to constantly work to reorder by God's word and never to embrace 
as something that comes from Him. The summation of the Christian life is this. We're called to say no to self and say yes to Jesus. And He is worth it. He's proven it in the way He's designed us and the natural flourishing that flows out of abiding in Him. But most of all, He's proven it by coming down to rescue us by giving His life as a payment for our sin. Brothers and sisters, let's walk this narrow path side by side, empowered by the Holy Spirit. More questions about gender and sexuality may arise in our culture, but let's trust God to give us wisdom and use our imperfect lives as a testimony that His ways are good and ultimately that He is the only God worthy of worship. Join us after the new year as we begin a new series focused on life. At the ERLC, we believe every life is made in God's image and worthy of care and protection. We will explore the pro-life landscape after the historic fall of Roe v. Wade, find out how Christians can get involved, and hear compelling stories of loving vulnerable children and their mothers. The ERLC Podcast is a production of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. It is produced by Lindsay Nicolay and Elizabeth Bristow. Technical production is provided by Owens Productions. It is edited and mixed by Mark Owens. Thanks for listening, and we're looking forward to being back together with you next time.